I want to invite your attention to a passage that's found in John the 18th chapter, and I want to begin reading there in verse 1. We'll just notice these two verses for our introduction. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden where he was there with his disciples. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. For a little while, I want to talk on the subject I've simply entitled Gethsemane. We'll notice our remarks from John's account when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Apart from the cross, no greater agony has ever been experienced by any being that has ever lived in this world in human form. No man has ever suffered this way. In fact, this is the second greatest agony that our Lord would experience, and obviously the first being that which is to come on the cross itself. But this is the second great agony. This is the apex of his life of sorrow and grief. This is the high point of torturous suffering. This is the night when Jesus anticipates drinking the cup of divine wrath, which would be his in full at the cross. And again, his sorrow was so severe and the struggle was so massive that the Bible says that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, if we look at the other gospel accounts, we see the human suffering side of Jesus. I don't want to minimize the human suffering side. Jesus was in tremendous agony. Terrible it was for the Son of God to go through the things that he did the night in which before he would be crucified on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. Earlier on in our meeting, we talked about the fact that the Bible describes Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, and also as the Son of God. Obviously, He's the Son of Man, meaning that our Messiah, our Savior, was fully human. There was a human side to the Messiahship. But He's the Son of God, meaning there is the divine side of His Messiahship. And it seems as though, if you look at the other gospel accounts, not John, the other ones, it seems as though they describe the human side with the human suffering, and John presents something else, the divine side, the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, all of these things really point to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and it's done so with four preeminent features. Now, let me just say, we're going to spend more time on number one than we are the rest of them. And by the time we get to number four, it's going to be actually in the conclusion. So don't think that because we're spending so much time on number one, we're going to be here all day and night. We're just going to spend more time on number one. The first preeminent feature that exalts Jesus to the highest in the event of the Garden of Gethsemane was his supreme courage. His courage is certainly seen in his willingness to go to the cross. You know, I'll tell you, it's courageous when somebody would die for a cause. In fact, we call that a hero. When somebody would die for a cause. We also find that if someone is tremendously create, a, a courageous because he's willing to be martyred for a truth that he, is, he refuses to reject, we call that noble. But purpose in your mind, Jesus. Think about Jesus here. 
Jesus is about to be have all of his purity and all of his sinlessness violated and bear the sin of every man that has ever lived. He would be on the cross abandoned by God and he would say those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or as another translation renders it, My God, my God, why are you so far from helping me? This is courage. This is infinite, supreme courage. And Jesus sets his face to go to the cross and does so undaunted, and he does so without hesitation. Please understand this, though. When they came to arrest Jesus, he was not tricked, he was not trapped, and he was not surprised. Please understand that. It even magnifies his courage even more so. He wasn't tricked, he wasn't trapped, and he wasn't surprised. Notice verse 1 now as I'll put it on the screen. Verse 1, John 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. Now, obviously in some translations say he went forth, but evidently what it's talking about, when he finished speaking the words of the prayer in the 17th chapter, he's going to go with those disciples, he's going to leave that upper room, he's going to leave the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to cross a little brook called Kidron, and he's going to go a place there that we simply call the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it was his custom to retire there. It's a place that he often went there. In fact, the Bible says in John chapter 7, very end of the chapter, it says this. Every man went to his own house. But then the beginning of chapter 8 says, And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was the closest thing to home that the Lord had. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking to that scribe who said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Early on in this meeting, we talked about what that means. It meant that Jesus did not have the creature comforts of life that even the animals have. Not only that, he didn't have a place of permanence in this world. And that's what he was talking about. Oftentimes, though, he went to this place called the Garden. He went to this place in the Mount of Olives. Now, there were other times that he might go out a little ways, cross a little road, go around a little hill, I'm told, and go to the place called Bethany and be there with dear friends Mary and Martha. But not on this night. This was time for Gethsemane. I want you to understand that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen each and everything that did happen. He not only, he not only knew, but he also planned every detail. Now, first of all, there's somebody else that also knew, and I think this is very important. There's somebody else that knew that Jesus was going to go there, and it was the betrayer. It was Judas Iscariot. When we think about the relationship between Jesus and Judas, there's actually a picture in the Old Testament of two other characters that kind of fit that description or that similar picture. And because of that, it actually brings up a very interesting point about prophecy. Let me just say, there's two kinds of prophecy. Number one, there's verbal predictive prophecy. 
And number two, there is typical prophecy. Verbal predictive prophecy is a verbal prediction of something that's going to happen later. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That is a verbal prediction that's going to be fulfilled later about Jesus Christ. We understand that. But typical prophecy is different. Typical prophecy is prophecy in types. For example, every Old Testament sacrifice was a picture of Jesus. The ultimate and final sacrifice he would be for the world. Now, sometimes men or characters also typified Christ. For example, how about Moses? Moses typified Jesus in that Moses was the deliverer to deliver God's people, the children of Israel, out of Egyptian bondage. Jesus is the fulfillment of that in that he is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the ultimate deliverer to deliver, to deliver people out of the bondage of sin. What about Joseph? You know, a preacher one time said that he counted over a hundred points of likeness between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. One of which would be how he was betrayed and how he was sold. And the Bible would describe that his brother sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. In like fashion, Jesus was sold and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Now... There were also characters that were tip, that typified Jesus in, a, in an event. Like Isaac. When God told Abraham, take thy son, thine only son Isaac, and take him to a place that I will tell thee and offer him as a sacrifice unto me. Do you remember as they went on and they spent about three days on this journey? You know, in the mind of Abraham, the very second that he purposed to go and obey God and offer Isaac as a sacrifice, when that three-day period started in his mind as he began, for three days, Isaac was already sacrificed. You know what happened three days later? God stayed his hand and he received him back. In like fashion, Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross. He was buried. And on the third day, guess what? He received him back. There's something else too. You know when Isaac carried the wood that he would be sacrificed on? Can you imagine that? Having someone carry or something that you're going to sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, and you're going to carry the wood that you're going to be sacrificed on? That's exactly what Isaac did. And you know that typified Jesus because guess what? Jesus also carried the wood that he would be sacrificed on as well. All of this is typical prophecy. Now, I said all that to say this. There's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and Judas in the Old Testament, and it's found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're talking about King David. And the Bible says that David had a familiar friend, and his name was Ahithophel. Now, we know the story. 
Absalom, the bad son of David, decides to rise up against David and all of that. You know what happened? A familiar friend by the name of Ahithophel lifted up his heel against David, as it were, and went with Absalom. Do you know where David went? David crossed the little brook Kidron and he went to the Mount of Olives with his faithful followers in like fashion. Judas lifted up his heel against Christ. Judas, being a familiar friend, he did the very same thing. You know what Jesus did? He crossed the little brook Kidron and he went into the Mount of Olives with his followers. Why did Jesus go there if he knew that all of that was going to happen? Why did he do that? The Mount of Olives or the, or the Garden of Gethsemane was a place of prayer. It was a place of rest and it was a place of fellowship with his disciples. That's all true. But all of that is secondary. The primary reason that he went there is because he knew that Judas knew where he would go and he knew that Judas would take that mob and bring him right there and he was going to surrender himself willfully to do that. Now, does that mean that Jesus was actually setting up the confrontation? That's exactly what that means. That's exactly what that means. Look at the next verse. Verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You know, I've often thought, as I've reflected back on that event, I've often thought, what if Jesus would have stayed in Jerusalem? Have you ever thought about that? What if he would have stayed in Jerusalem with his disciples? Then what? What if the arrest would have taken place in the city of Jerusalem? Now we know a few things about the life of Jesus in the last week of Jesus. We know a few things. For example, we know that there were people that rejected Jesus. One week prior though, they were saying, Hosanna to the king. I guess in today's common vernacular, three cheers for Jesus. And then many other people just forsook him and all that. We know that. But then among others, Jesus was very popular. Can you imagine how it would have been if they would have come to take Jesus and in the life or in the, in the midst of all of those that perhaps would have been supporters of Jesus? Maybe it would have caused a revolution. I don't know. Maybe an insurrection. Jesus is going to a place where he is taken and he controls everything. This is willful, voluntary surrender. Listen to John chapter 10 and verse 17. Listen to this. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. That's verse 17. Here's verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. In other words, a coward would have gone anywhere but the garden. You know, in Matthew chapter 26, it says that great multitudes came with swords, staves, and clubs, and they were ready for action. You know, the best that I can tell, it, was, it seems to me that the temple police were those that used the clubs. The soldiers of Rome used the swords and the staves, and they come to get Jesus. And look at verse number three. Listen to this. Then Judas, 
having received a detachment of troops. Interesting about that. What is a detachment of troops? A detachment of troops, by the way, is a Roman cohort. Now, I've read a lot of commentators. I've read a lot of things. I know Shahe. I'm sure he has. But I'll tell you, I've read a lot about how many men were, would have been in this Roman cohort. Let me just share with you some things that I have read. One commentator said that a Roman cohort could have constituted anywhere from 200, 600, or even 1,200 men. All right. Then I just Googled a Roman cohort, and I came up with this. A Roman legion equaled 10 cohorts. Now, 10 cohorts in a Roman legion was 5,000 men. So if there are 10 cohorts, you're talking about 500 men. Let's just grab that number. Let's just say 500 men. Can you imagine 500 men? And here they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And guess who's right out in front? The vile betrayer. And he's leading the way. He's in the front. I like what one man said one time. What a compliment. 500 men plus all the others. What a compliment to send so many to get a Galilean carpenter and his friends. I say that because that's all they considered him to be. Just a Galilean carpenter and his friends. Now, it says they came with lanterns and torches. I read one commentator that said that during the time of the Passover, in that area, it would have been a full moon. Now, because of that, it would have lit up the skies and they would have been able to see where they were going. In other words, they did not need a lantern or a torch to find the way to navigate their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So why did they have them? Why'd they have lanterns and torches? I'll tell you why I think. I think they had lanterns and torches because they thought they were going to have to search every nook and cranny that Jesus would be somewhere, coward somewhere, hiding somewhere, and all these men were coming and Judas is out in front and they had to take these torches and lanterns and find him somewhere because he was hiding. You know the irony here? The irony is they came with torches searching for the light of the world. They came with swords searching for the Prince of Peace. What an insult. What a cruel misinterpretation of Jesus. Who he was. And Judas is out in front. And what does he do when he arrives? Well, we look to the other Gospels and we find out about the kiss. I've got to make a point about the kiss. Mark chapter 15. Listen to this. Or 14, Mark chapter 14. In verse 44, here was the deal they set up. Watch this. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Take him and lead him away safely. Now, the deal was, I'm going to go and I'm going to kiss Jesus. And that's what the word is. In a singular fashion, a term of welcome and love. And I'm going to, a term of greeting. And I'm going to give him one little kiss. That's what the word means. On the cheek as it were. Now, we don't go around kissing everybody today. We don't do that. Now, I'm Italian. And some of my Italian relatives uh, kiss both cheeks and all that. I've never done that. I have no, uh, no intention to ever plan on doing that. I'm just going to stick my hand out, shake your hand, hug your neck, and that's it. 
Here was the deal. Judas was going to use a term of love and respect and honor of a friend in a greeting, in a friendly greeting. Whoever I kiss, that's him. Lay hold of him and take him away. But look at verse 45. That's not what happened. Verse 45. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. That word kissed in verse 45 is not the word kissed in verse 44. In verse 45, it is a magnified verb of the word to kiss. In other words, this terrible, vile traitor went up to the Lord and kissed him repeatedly. What a terrible thing. And he kissed him repeatedly. What a devilish refinement of a kiss. And nowhere else can you find the disciples kissed coupled with a traitor's sign. Now, look at the next verse. In verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Now, please understand, this is Jesus understanding everything that was going to happen. He's understanding all that's going to be. And because he knew what was going to happen, he went forward. In fact, in chapter 13 of John, in verse 18, Jesus says, He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. This is humble, willing sacrifice. All right. Jesus initiated the whole thing. Now, if you put the whole thing together, we might say that the kiss came first. We might say the kiss came first. Maybe it did. But did you know that nothing happened until what Jesus does, does next? If you put all the accounts together, it may be that the devilish kiss came first. But nothing happened until Jesus did this. He says, whom are you seeking? That's when things were going to happen. That's when things began to happen. Who are you seeking? He went out the gate. They were coming to meet him. He had seen them all the way. He saw Judas put the whole thing together. He had seen them all come out the gate, down the hill, back up the hill. And he walks right out to meet them. This is majestic boldness. This is courage that the Lord had set forth as he went to the cross. And that brings us to verse 5. And that covers the next point, which is not only supreme courage, but also supreme power. Now... Perhaps the kiss came first, but nothing happened until Jesus says, Who are you seeking? Watch what happens next in verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said, I am. In the original, it just says, I am. I am. Now, watch this. In verse 6, watch what happens. Look at the power of Jesus. Watch what happens. And then when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, 
Have you ever wondered why Judas, it says that Judas was out in front of the whole thing? I think Judas is there to prove to Judas that he has no power at all. He is nothing but a vile traitor. And the Lord was totally in control. The Lord was laying down his life. Nobody takes it from him. Now, have you ever wondered why they all fell to the ground? I actually read two commentators and this is what they said. I don't get it. One commentator said this is what happened. Now picture this, picture this. Got about 500 of these soldiers there. 500 in the Roman cohort. And one commentator said when they fell, this is what happened. You see the first guy just kind of stumbled back a little bit and they were kind of lined up really close to each other. So the first guy kind of stumbled into the second guy. and Pretty soon he knocked into the third guy. And pretty soon, as it were, all 500, they just kind of, like dominoes, tipped each other over and they all fell. Yeah, really? That's what we're going with? You don't think a soldier knew how to stand on his own two feet? Here's another commentator. You know what he said? Oh, they thought they were going to have to really search for Jesus, but when they found him, they were so surprised they just fainted back. Soldiers, really? I'm going to tell you why they fell, folks. They fell because of what he said. They fell to the ground because of what Jesus said. And this is supreme power. Jesus said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they all fell. Look at the power. The power of Jesus. He said, I am. And in the very presence... They all fell. You know, the Bible says that God created the world by what? Created the world by His Word. In fact, the Bible says God would say, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be this, and there was that. All right. When Jesus Christ comes in judgment at the end of time, the Bible says He has a sharp sword. Where's the sharp sword? Coming out of His mouth. You see, it's the Word of God that's powerful. It's the Word of God that will judge men. It's the Word of God that will condemn men. It's the Word of God that is incisive, and it comes out of His mouth. This mob that was there just got a little taste of judgment power, supreme power. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am He, or I am, and they fell to the ground. That leads us to our third point. And that is, we find another preeminent feature in the arrest of Jesus. You know what we see? We see supreme love. Supreme love. You know, when Jesus anticipated the cross, He was always concerned about His disciples. Always. They're constantly on His mind. We see the selflessness of Jesus. We see the endless love for His own. In fact, in Mark's account, in Mark 15... When he was praying to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy me done. Three times the prayer was interrupted, and when he does that, he checks on those disciples. Now i got to ask you, don't you think that Jesus was pretty busy just now? He was about to go and bear the sins of the world on the cross. I think he was pretty busy, but he was concerned about his disciples. Watch what happens. They've already asked the question once. 
He already asked the question once. Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm He. And they all fall down. And then verse 7. And then He asked them again, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, a little side point here. Wouldn't you think you'd be impressed if Jesus said, I am, and the power was so great that you as a soldier fell to the ground in His power. Don't you think you'd be impressed by that? But they're unfaced. They fall down. They get back up. They're unfaced. The Lord asks them again, who are you looking for? They're unfaced. They just said, well, it's just Jesus of Nazareth, and they answer it again. Now, I got to thinking about this. You know, sometimes we wonder about people. You preach the gospel, they hear about what the Lord has done for their sins. They learn about salvation, they learn about heaven. They learn about having a better life after this life. They learn about all of that. And you would think that they would be moved to make a decision to obey the Lord, but they're unfazed and they just kind of walk right out the back door again. That's nothing new. Remember when Paul was talking to Felix, the governor Felix? He reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. What happened to Felix? He trembled. Then he said, go thy way for now, and when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee unfaced. Remember 9-11? I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly the time it was. I remember in California the sun wasn't up yet when I, where I was. I remember all of that when that happened. I also remember how people changed for just a little while. People started being drawn to their Bibles. And sometimes that happens with tragedy. People are drawn to God in tragedy. But then in a period of time, whatever, we just go back. We just go back and be unfazed. These men were unfazed, folks. So why did Jesus ask twice? Watch this. Supreme love. Why did he ask twice? Here it is. Verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Oh, the Lord was so brilliant. He was so brilliant. He repeats the order to them. And by the way, let me ask you, who looks like they're really in control? He said, who are you looking for? He made the initiative. He went out to them. He, knowing everything, orchestrated all of it, set it all in motion. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am, I'll fall down, back up again. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Then guess what Jesus does? He's not making a suggestion. He is commanding them. He said, if you're looking for me, I have already told you that I am he, so let them go. Let them go. Totally in control. What a powerful concept. You know, Jesus is not the kind of shepherd who rescues a lamb after it's half eaten by the wolf. In John chapter 10 and verse 12, listen to this. But the hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. This is Jesus referring to himself as the shepherd. And he describes the hireling. Now look, verse
verse 13. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Watch this. Verse 14. But I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Now a couple things we have to say. I think Jesus knew that they would not be able to handle such a persecution or they wouldn't be able to handle having them come. How many times did Jesus say to them, O ye of little faith? They had faith, but they didn't have enough. But there's so much more. There's so much more. Jesus needed the disciples to go forth and preach the gospel. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Acts, they did just that. Those disciples literally turned the world upside down preaching the gospel. Jesus knew he needed them, but he protected them in every way. You know, the Lord always has time for his own. He always has time for his own. The Lord is always there for us. And when you think about your life, let me just say this. We, the Lord doesn't leave us. Have you ever heard somebody say, where was the Lord when this terrible thing happened in my life? I like what one preacher said one time. Well, I'll tell you where he was when your son died. He was the same place that he was when his son died. Folks, the Lord doesn't leave our side. We leave him. We leave the Lord. And when we leave the Lord, we're away from the Lord. But if we are doing what is right, the Lord will never leave our side. Even if we have terrible things that come our way, listen to this promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, and with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But folks, we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. Look at this. Jesus says, let them go, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those you gave me. I have lost none. He protected them all. What about Peter? What about Peter? What, about, what did Peter do in verse 10? Impulsive Peter. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear... And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, just a little freebie here. A little freebie. I don't think Peter was trying to be a great swordsman. And I don't think he was so skilled that he intended on cutting off Malchus's ear. So he just aimed really closely and just sliced it off like that. I think he was swinging for the cheap seats. I think he was swinging with that sword to cut his head off. And he cut off his ear. Peter decides to do it on his own. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it your own way. You can't do it that way. Now, that brings us to our final point as we draw our remarks to a close. All this happens... Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. They answered twice. He said, then if you are looking for me, I've already told you that I am he, then let these go. 
Why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoke. All those that you gave me, he's talking to his father, I have lost none. Simon Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus puts it right back on. Now, one final thing. The Lord shows a fourth preeminent feature, and that is supreme obedience. Look at verse 11. Then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? I'll tell you, people in the world don't like the word obedience. People don't like that word. I don't want to do that. People also don't like this word. Submission. And the reason that people don't like the word submission is because people misunderstand what it means. Submission and obedience is not a term of weakness. It is the ultimate term of strength. It is something willful. It's not somebody putting you in your place. It is something that is willful. You are by strength submitting yourself in obedience to God. And incidentally, in the marriage relationship, I'll just say this too. When a wife would be in submission to her husband, that is the ultimate, ultimate act of strength. Not weakness. Not less than. It's an act of strength. And it's willful. Active obedience, the Lord set the stage. He said to Peter, put that thing away. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? All right. Jesus paid a price he didn't know because we had a debt we couldn't pay. And yet sometimes people today are so unfazed, unfazed by what the Lord has done. What do we learn in these verses in the Garden of Gethsemane? We learn these things right here. We learn, number one, supreme courage. Jesus went forward. He orchestrated the whole thing. He set the whole thing into motion. He knew that's exactly where Judas would take that mob. And so he went right there, an act of courage. He so showed supreme power. He said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And all 500 and who else was there fell down. What else do we learn? Supreme love. He said the second time, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I already told you it was me. Here I am. Let them go. And finally, supreme obedience. Folks, he drank the cup to the bottom. And we are so thankful. And we are so grateful because now we have the hope of everlasting life. I'll close with this final remark. The Lord always has time for you. How much time do you have for the Lord? He always has time for us. How much time in our life do we have for Him? How much time have we devoted to serving Him? How much time have we devoted to worshiping Him when the doors are open? How much time?